This is Mage the Podcast, the podcast about all things Mage the Ascension related. I'm your host today, Terry Robinson, and my guest is Josh Heath. He is the COO of High Level Games. Josh, what should our audience know about you, and why should we listen to you when it comes to the world of darkness? I am a longtime world of darkness storyteller and player. I've been playing in these games since I started LARPing when I was 15, um, and 20-plus years ago, you can do the math, uh, or 20-plus years on, I am still running lots of World of Darkness games. I am an Onyx Path freelancer. I worked on Gods and Monsters. I am a prolific Storyteller's Vault writer. I've got um, some work for Pugmire, and I'm also doing some work for other RPGs out there as well. So I know a couple of things when it comes to Mage and a couple of things when it comes to games in general. I barely am muster the creative resources to run a mage session once every four weeks for four hours and i am crying on the inside for my inability to keep up with that our notional topic this evening is the occult in the world of darkness can you give us a working definition of what we mean when we say occult the occult is a really broad term in the real world and it's potentially a really broad term in the world of darkness in that every splat has a cult as a knowledge on their character sheet. And yet the way that's sort of expressed within the game lines is very different. It often means some sort of understanding of ritual elements and some sort of understanding of the underlying generalized principles of magic and counterculture magical elements in the world. Uh, things like, but not limited to, eldritch horrors that one might find in Lovecraft or anything like that, as well as things like the Golden Dawn and more of the modern sort of neo-pagan ritual elements that people are sort of familiar with in the real world. Those things are tied into a cult, but also the occult is a broad term that encompasses the some of the individual groups that do ritualized magic in the various game lines within the world of darkness. I have a verbena. That character does ritual magic. Does that character automatically have any occult understanding? Or is the occult focused on some different area of knowledge than specific magical practice as it pertains to the awakened? It's, it's a hard question to answer because if that character, is through their paradigm, understands what they do as interacting with the occult, then yes. But if they view it, uh, and I think this can be very true, particularly of the verbena, if they view some of what they do as herbalism, and or medicine and or chemistry and or all of these other angles that they could come into their magical paradigm through by the rules none of that has to be occult knowledge it's when you get into that weird fine line of if this is a ritual if i'm say i'm drawing a pentagram is that a cult maybe it certainly is in the real world ish but is it mechanically a cult in the game i don't know it depends on the character in some ways so we brought up the verbena what other groups tend to be most associated with the occult or occult knowledge as a mechanism of magic or interacting with the larger world of darkness the obvious are the order of hermes everything that we associate with modern occult practices ties into something the hermetics do or have done within a historical context for mages historical context at least the ali batin 
they tie into a lot of the occult and mysticism elements the nefandi do as well and that gets into the dark layers of the occult and the kind of pseudo modern and historically like linked understandings of the occult where people tend to see it as something that's dark but that gets into weird definitions of the occult as well from a mage perspective those are the three that immediately pop out so what i'm getting is that the verbena or the order of hermes may be tapping into essentially a mythic thread that there is this body of knowledge that believes that there are certain rules of the universe that through ritual and practice can be unlocked and they can be channeled to some sort of magical effect so that becomes a knowledge that informs magic but seemingly unique among those, this seems to be something that other kinds of night folk can use. Uh, occult ritual pops up a lot in Vampire. It pops up in Wraith and some other lines. Mm -hmm. So is it just a case that where we're using one word amongst a whole bunch of lines and it doesn't mean the same thing everywhere? Or do you feel that there is some underlying thing that all those uses of the word occult are tapping into? I think the, the creators, and I am going to put words and thoughts into Mark Reinhagen and other people's heads, but in my projection of what their thinking was, they viewed the occult exactly the way you described it, as a set of rituals that people do and they have specific effects, but also a set of pseudo-academic knowledge about those things. Um, understanding you know, the roots of Crowley's Thelema in the Golden Dawn and those links to the Yazidi practices of people that Crowley drug a lot of his elements from. Those things in a particularly early 90s context were a lot of what the occult magic scene was looking at so those things i think are at the core of this is what an occult ability or a knowledge on the character sheet does to really say every game line looks at that in a different way in practice but in in principle that was the sort of linchpin for all of them having it okay so there's a common nexus about it but as opposed to a lot of other things for instance three dots of medicine to a werewolf is pretty well three dots of medicine to a mage that is not necessarily the case with a cult kind of the comparison i'm seeing is the merit true faith i feel is almost fundamentally different for a mage versus any other night folk that can take it and it seems in this case a cult is kind of two separate things in here it's something that may inform ritual practice and it may give information about the wider occult world but it may not be used the same way that other uh, lines are going to be using that trait yeah that's true even worse it's different potentially in line oh okay e you know each for example a vampire that is from lagos in nigeria may have five dots of occult to simulate their understanding of traditional Nigerian witchcraft practices. That could be used on a character sheet to represent that, and that makes sense. You could also have a character that is a mudang from Korea with five dots of occult, and that represent their paradigmatic expression of their faith and their practice. And they could both be vampires. They could both even be Tremere, or they could both be Toreador, or whatever. But because they have these different backgrounds, they use occult to reference those things differently got it so this is a case kind of like the academics background where three dots in academics is essentially meaningless being like i have three dots of book learning so that's not <laughs> it's not exactly specific so if i want to use this in a story when i say i can use two dots of occult to indicate that my character has a little bit of understanding of world practice 
or I can use that as a drill down to say that my character is particularly skilled at maybe this this one type of ritual practice, and on my character sheet I should indicate that. So it sounds like yep. the argument is this little thing that's on a character sheet is actually a much wider world, and Professor Josh is going to explain it to us. <laughs> We're going to try to, at least. You have made reference to a whole bunch of different occult practices, and I feel comfortable in saying that we are not using occult in any sort of derogatory way, that we're simply mm. using it to refer to hidden or mystery, capital M, belief systems and practices. So, for instance, if my character is a participant in, say, for instance, a Greek mystery religion, I can use occult to represent the understanding of that. Yeah, I would say definitely. Can I drill down into something you said there that I think is really essential? Drill. The... Uh, use of secret and mystery is really important in a, a big O usage of occult in that occult means to hide things, to keep some elements of, of things hidden. And that is absolutely true of anything that I would say should be covered by occult. These are traditions that are usually lineaged or they have forms of initiation, those things are occult and in no way derogatory. There are many things we do in our world that are initiatory, and particularly from a magical practice, the more initiatory magics tend to be the ones that have sustained themselves throughout the years. So almost uh, covertness as a way of extending yourself through time? Covertness, but also weeding out the, the people that aren't ready to gain the layers of mystery. When you weed out those folks, the people that stay are more likely to carry on these traditions because they're invested in it. That makes sense. We've kind of reviewed the occult as it may pop up in Mage. How does it fundamentally differ in other lines? You talked at length about how Mage's kind of look at other people's ritual operations and they're like, duh. So what does the occult fundamentally look like for a vampire, for instance, and how can that inform something that a mage might be seeing? Vampires in particular, I think there are three layers. I'm just actually, I'm just going to draw three layers from vampire and say, these are three different expressions of the occult okay. in that world. Um, the obvious one is the Tremere. I'm not going to talk about them. I think any mage player that's played a hermetic can get behind the Tremere's thought processes. Instead, I want to focus on the Sabbat. And for folks that are listening that might not know who the Sabbat are, they are the religio-mystical sword. <laughs> they are a, a warrior cult who worship Cain as a god with the goal of bringing war against the progenitors of vampire kind, which they see to be a holy crusade. Okay, can I stop you? So we can define a whole bunch of stuff for our audience. <laughs> sure. So sure. first off, uh, Tremere, he was a member of the House of Hermes. He saw the advent of the paradox phenomenon coming, says to himself and a bunch of his friends, yo Gortrix, yo Merlita, how can we deal with this? I think I have a ritual that will allow us to pertain power. I think there was literally, they had to cut off their own dongs to do this. And they wake up later and they find out they're vampires. They've lost the ability to do traditional wheel working, but now they're immortal. And that's kind of got its own little upside to it. They then started a war against other houses within the Hermetics to keep this all in the down low. They result in the, the extinction of House Diadne. Eventually, this comes to light. They realize that these people, they've been infiltrated by, by vampires. The first Masasa War occurs, and there's been some, let's say, Biggie Tupac like rivalry between the two <laughs> for for quite some time and you brought up the 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 sabbat within vampire the masquerade there's a group of people that are like 
hey, if we want to continue working, we need to do everything secretly. That is the Camarilla or the Camarilla. And <clears throat> they do not believe that the Antediluvians are a thing anymore. The Antediluvians are the progenitors of each of the vampire lines. They are Cain's, the first vampire's grandchildren. The Sabbat, on the other hand, is like, uh-uh. They're going to rise one night. Cain's going to try and smoke them bitches. And uh, we're going to help. And then we're just going to be... Then it's going to be boats and hoes from then on out. <laughs> my my definitional <laughs> aside. And the only thing I would add to that definition is Cain is the progenitor of all vampires. We didn't drill down on that. May I introduce my favorite piece of meta plot that was never actually confirmed? Mm, go ahead. When the book Ascension was being written, I think it was Bill Bridges was was writing it, and he had a whole bunch of notes that he eventually wound up posting on LiveJournal. And his statement was that when Cain killed Abel, that was a paradox backlash that created all vampires. That up until that point, the notion of murder simply didn't exist. A new idea was brought into existence. It was anathema to the order of creation. And that all vampires are just a paradox batlash. And I love that. Mm, that is a really cool idea. Uh-huh. But he didn't want to rewrite, like, another line. So he's <laughs> right. like, oh, by the way, you're a big accident. Meh. That actually, that does link into Demon the Fallen in some interesting ways. So uh -huh. we'll just leave it there for people that want to dive into it. Uh-huh. <laughs> And I'll have to get a Demon the Fallen expert on at some point so we can talk Demon crossover and what lore of the firmament means and uh, how to pronounce all those Hebrew names. So the, the Sabbat. Right, the Sabbat. So the Sabbat, uh, the reason I, I'm focusing in on them is because everything they do, a lot of what they do to kind of keep cohesive is based around various occult rituals. They have pseudo-Catholic and pseudo-Native American and pseudo-Eastern European blood rituals okay. all tied into what they do on a, a nightly basis to, to keep their supposed freedoms intact. So how this manifests in the game is the Sabbat does a ritual called the Valdery which they take blood from each participant and they drink from it and by doing so they gain small attachments to one another within a pack, but break any blood bonds, which are the mystical bonds that usually vampires use to keep their descendants, their childers, the term they use in the game, in line. The Sabbat says, instead of that, we're going to have this um, thing that keeps us all unified, but breaks down all of those other blood bonds. Um, and that's all done within a very ritualistic sort of format. So they're a very occult group by doing everything that they do within those various ritual formats. Now, is that something where a Mage Chronicle could pick that up, where it would be of use to a cabal or a group of mages to have similar rituals where like, oh, we're all going to pour some personal quintessence into this bucket and then we're going to draw out from us and we're each we're going to now have a sympathetic bond with everyone else in our cabal so if something goes down correspondence that's a relatively short range i can pull you out of something bad or do you feel this is strictly a flavorful thing that the characters notice a sabbat group of vampires doing and they're like what's that i love that idea because one of the problems that mage has on some level is why is this the Society of Ether member and this Verbena, why are they hanging out? Their paradigms are drastically in conflict with one another. Well, if, if they're able to see, hey, this gr other group, they're finding some way to pool what is effectively tasks. They're seeing this literal task being made and then glued together and then redistributed. I could easily see a group of mages going, 
why don't we do something similar to that? I think that would be really cool. And that also answers a critical question even more so for, for instance, the Nafondi, where it's constant backstabbing, might makes right. How do we prevent this from just falling into a grand melee? The answer, we do this nightly ritual where we all dump a point of task that we had to have collected from somebody we killed in a brutal fashion during the day. We dump it into a pot. We all take it out. We say some weird prayer and bam, we're, uh, we, we get along with each other for another night or something. Yeah. And even adding layers into that, they might get along a little bit better, but also they gain extra power from it. Oh, okay. which it's got to it's got to have those layers because mm-hmm. the Valdery, yes, it does the we're bonding one another together, but it also by breaking down the blood bonds that traditionally held vampire society together, it separates them from the entire power structure that is used to keep kids down. So there's got to be if you're using it into a mage format, I would say it has to do something a little bit more additionally as well. So it links them together and then maybe gives them an extra point of willpower or something. And now it makes me wonder if there's like mage STIs where <laughs> if <laughs> my avatar can have like avatar chlamydia. So if I start sharing tasks with you, something weird starts happening. If anyone's going to have that mm. happen, I feel it's going to be the Nefandi or the Cult of Ecstasy. So are there any other Sabbat rituals you fear, feel could inform a mage campaign or like fundamental mechanics that, that that kind of occult ritual can introduce into a game? Or would you like to talk about another uh, another line? Let's go in a different direction. Though okay. now I'm looking at all of the Sabbat rituals and going, I could turn this into this in Mage, and I could turn this into that in Mage, but yeah. we're not going to do that. It's probably not a good idea. But is there, a, <laughs> is there a big book of Sabbat rituals for players who are interested? Because I don't know about you, but like one of the things I envy about the magical effects in Vampire is it'll say something like, you have to sacrifice two desiccated bull penises, uh, nine nine cow livers, and a high school photo. And you get this effect, and then it explains the significance of all those. And I'm like, whoa, that's way better than I do when I come up with <laughs> when I come up with roots. So I, I, I'm pretty good at, uh, at at grabbing from outside sources. Is there like a big book of Sabbat rituals? There isn't, but the book that I would suggest to people would be Guide to the Sabbat, which is a revised era book. It probably has enough for you as a storyteller to get started to kind of look at it and go, okay, these are things that I could pull from this and do different things with. At the beginning of the uh, the discussion, you rattled off a number of what I'll call real-world groups that could also theoretically exist in the world of darkness. If mm-hmm. I want to introduce the occult into my chronicle, there's kind of a smash-and-grab way I can do it where I just talk about like some key idea, but how do I do that respectfully? Like mm-hmm. I, I understand that I am not a neo-pagan, and I understand that there are people who find that a fulfilling life experience. I find it difficult as a storyteller to introduce that into a story without doing a lot of homework, so I try and do that whenever it comes up. How do we respectfully introduce the occult? That It's a tough question and a really good one. And there's no easy answer, because it's going to depend on your group, and it's going to depend on how willing you are to dive headfirst into into whatever you want to introduce effectively. The best thing you can do is research. For example, I come from a neo-pagan faith. We prefer to use the term heathen to refer to Norse ritual and Norse religious practices. So for me, it's very easy for me to say, I can bring all of these things in and I can do it right. And anyone looking in is going to go, yeah, okay, I see what you're doing. And I'm okay with that. If I were to bring in and have done so at times, uh, elements of Korean mudang practices, mudangs are the shamanic tradition that is common 
in Korea. It's kind of like the third tier of religious practices in Korea. So there is Buddhism, there is Christianity, and there is there are the practices of the mudangs. And mudangs will go around um, the country and they will do various rituals with spirits around the country. Now, I lived in Korea for a period of time. I'm familiar with those um, rituals because I've been at places where they were occurring. I've done some research on them, but I'm no expert. So if I were to want to layer those into a game, I would do some reading. I would potentially try and talk with someone and say, hey, what about your practices? Are you comfortable with people understanding, knowing, and utilizing within a storytelling perspective? Because most people are really excited when you say, hey, I want to learn about what you're doing so I can tell a story about it. Because then that gets people interested in learning more about those things and helping sustain them. There's a line where that can become cultural appropriation, but that's an entirely different conversation. At this stage, when you're creating a story, your goal is to do um, appreciation respectfully and kind of use some of those elements without diving super far into the mysteries that you're trying to bring to the fore. So what I might do is say, okay, there is this character. She happens to be a, an Akashic from Seoul. And she is doing these different rituals. Yes, she's doing all the different types of dough practices that Akashics do, but she is also involved in doing these more shamanic types of practices. So... I would describe the different things that she does as they pertain to the story. And if people are interested in exploring that and exploring the cultural elements behind it, I would only take it so far in a game where I would say, this is kind of what I will describe to you. And this is the effects of it. But beyond that, I can't describe this effectively, but I think you can do some research and dive into it and learn about it if you would like to outside of the game. And luckily I imagine in most Chronicles, it's not going to have to go too deep in the mm -hmm. sense that a, a character can have some sort of religious belief that has an infinitude of depth to it. But the amount of that that's going to actually show up at a game table is going to be a little bit more superficial. My chorister, my stereotypical mainline Protestant, may have a, a doctorate in divinity or a master in divinity, but the vast preponderance of what's going to impact the game table is going to be uh, key major aspects of that faith. And I do like the fact that you said, I would like to tell a story because I think me being a dumb person would be like, I want to use this in a game. And, and your option sounds super more respectful. I'm just putting, <laughs> I'm just putting that out there. Yeah. What we do is storytelling. And when you tell people it from that angle, their entire like demeanor over it changes. Like when you describe LARPA's theater, people have an entirely different reaction to theater than people standing up dressed in funny costumes, even though it's effectively the same thing. I always considered LARPing to be a ritual where at the end of it, your virginity returns, but that's just because I don't have the cojones to actually do it myself. It's, it's, it's one of those things like when someone's like, when they look at you and they're like, do you want this dumpster fire ice cream that has literally every flavor of Skittle in it? And you're like, <laughs> I do, but I'm uncomfortable admitting it. That's my relationship with LARPing. Like I, Fair. it's probably like the cocaine of table uh, of like role playing, but I just, I don't want to admit to myself that, that how much I would probably fall into that. As long as you're not trying to LARP mage, because that is not a rule set you want to dive deep into. And I, I never will. 
Do you have any recommendations for occult practices or academic practices that you think are good introductory ones that a storyteller can both respectfully research on the internet or with a few conversations and where introducing it is going to be relatively straightforward? I think it's a good question and it's an impossible one to answer only because it depends on what version of the occult you're bringing in. If you decide, hey, I would like to have an NPC be steeped in a European or a Euro-American occult tradition, fine. That's very easy to do. You can go out and find books on Aleister Crowley basically anywhere. And I think he would be a good figure to read his biography, read his autobiography, and just get a, get a sense of his understanding of the occult, which informs so much of the movie media understanding of a cult in the Western tradition. Can you give a, is there a one or two sentence explanation you can give of his view of the occult or the occult practices uh, he promoted? I'm not quite sure what verbiage I should use around this. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. That sounds like an end real bad, real fast. <laughs> Was there like a Talmudic level of scholarship beyond that to be like, Thou will is actually interpreted as it, it, it's it's as grand and as basic as it seems on both ends. It, if you have the will to do it, you can make it happen, which is essentially a mage concept, right? Okay. If I have enough arete and I have enough will, what I decide to occur will occur. Okay, so this is not a statement of like wanton hedonism. Though he was a hedonist, okay. it, not necessarily. <laughs> okay, so there was a marketing issue there in the same way mm -hmm. that being an Epicurean and a follower of uh, Epicurus were two wildly different things. Okay, exactly. Pick it up what you're putting and, down. And essentially, you're saying, like, yes, you can do anything, but you have to recognize that there are limits within the universe, and what you do will have repercussions, will have reverberations that will impact you and may kill you or may cause other impacts that you don't want to have happen. Not going to lie. That, that really sounds like a useless piece of advice, but like, <laughs> was, was it groundbreaking at the time? Like, I really feel like I'm fundamentally missing something here. It is essentially one of those sort of like Zen Coens that you look at and go, yeah, but speaking to it that way is a revelatory sort of transition for someone. I think that's steeped in mage it's just sort of built in because it's it's the core of the mage concept. Ah, okay. But I think because there are folks out there, and particularly when Crowley said it initially, that weren't thinking in that direction, it certainly was controversial and moving okay. might be a good way of putting it. So if I could put this in a scientific paradigm, this would be the equivalent of someone saying um, the sun is a star. 2000 years ago like people's heads would be blown like what are you talking about mm -hmm. but like now like you toddlers will say that to you right so it's, it's one of those things where mage people kind of kind of get that intuitively but there is this whole ritual structure surrounding it that if a character mm -hmm. wanted to have that as no 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 no, i'm really double downing uh, doubling down double downing downward dogging um this <laughs> notion that <laughs> that that enlightened human will is an end unto itself and that is a medium through which i can affect the world yes and actually your reference to yoga and the downward facing dog is oh, you're also so good at this <laughs> <laughs> it's a very good other occult link to bring in which seems odd because we see yoga as an exercise practice today okay except yoga yeah, that's Hatha yoga, right? Right. Yeah. Right. And yoga came into the West 
from particularly from Madame Blavatsky, who was one of the major figures behind the Golden Dawn and the Theosophy Society in the late 1880s. Um, I'm running a, a Victorian mage game, so I've spent a lot of time like thinking about these elements in particular. But her influence on bringing Eastern mysticism into Western occult tradition then leads to Aleister Crowley, then leads to all of what we see in the occult groups that still exist within the U.S. and Europe. So yoga could be seen as an occult practice, even though we today see it as something that's just an exercise platform. At the beginning of this conversation, we talked about how a lot of these were mystery faiths in the traditional sense, meaning that your new practitioner did not get all the knowledge. Now, when I think of something like yoga or Crowleyan magic, is that something where there was a mystery structure to it? Or do, do these things tend to open up over time? Or is it one of those things where this is just what the public knows, but really once you dive into it, there still is this mystery element to it? Yes. Okay. <laughs> the, the easy answer to that is yes. Okay. And that you know, yoga is, as we understand it today, is just the surface of a larger mystery cult that dives into and dovetails into multiple different mystery cults. So if you want to pull in those elements, that's actually a really good way to use the occult in the world of darkness and in mage in particular is to create these small, these popular things or look at these popular things that we do in society and then look at who are the elite within that popular practice. For example, you know, there are, everyone does karate pretty much, but there are people that are masters in karate. And then there are people that those masters in karate look to as the real masters. That is the exact same sort of thing you see in most cults, which is maybe creepy to say, but it's the way the occult orders work as well that there's there's a general populace that are kind of interested in the thing and then you find the people that are really good at it and you invite them into the inner circle and then you tell them this isn't the inner circle there's another inner circle and then that's where you get the real power and then you become Debbie from the darkest dungeons is that a figure of speech or is that like a character <laughs> that i have missed oh that's that's a, a societal reference to uh, jack chick tracks which american preacher who wrote comics for years and had one about how horrible d&d was and there is a person that that is shown the true power of magic through d&d um, and then, of course, she dies horribly because that's what happens. And then they all go to hell. Oh, that's fascinating. How how about that? He said, <laughs> smiling. So it sounds like um, that just about any practice can be viewed through an occult light in the idea that there is some sort of hidden wisdom, that there is a day-to-day -day practice that maybe the public can engage in, but that is merely a superficial level of knowledge or understanding that that not everyone will understand and that's kind of what makes it a little bit different than maybe a traditional mainline religion where theoretically everything is available on first blush and the learning practice may be a bit more academic and less gated have i laid down a reasonable dichotomy there in saying like this is the difference between an occult practice and this is the different and this is how the monotheistic faiths are generally done so by mass most of humanity or, or yeah. is that just an arbitrary distinction i've made in some ways, it's an arbitrary distinction, not that it's not a good distinction, okay. but even Christianity has occult orders within it. Opus Dei in Catholicism 
is, I would say, a militant occult order within Catholicism. I apologize if others don't agree with that opinion, but from an outside perspective, that is what I would say fits the description. You could even say a monastery is effectively, effectively in some ways, an occult order around set around a monastery. Okay. Um, Islam has Sufism. Um, Judaism has Kabbalah and other layers of mystery. Some of Temple Judaism particularly was a mystery cult. So even those mainline religions as we understand them have occult elements within them. Okay, so what I'm learning now is darn near everything in life is a cult. That's, <laughs> pardon me, O-C-C-U-L-T, not A space C-U-L-T. Um, right. Okay. <laughs> Good to know. I'm a little bit more terrified about leaving my front door, but at the same time, it makes sense in that, well, like you think this is esoteric, but in a lot of ways, we are dealing with occult structures where there is gated access to knowledge in almost every place. Now, we, uh, the, you had made mention earlier in the podcast about uh, the occult practices of the Nefandi. I would personally feel wildly uncomfortable about taking any of these occult practices and being like, oh, by the way, this is actually at its core. This is fundamentally a Nefandi practice. So if right. I want to make if I want to make my Nefandi occult system from scratch and make it reasonable, what recommendations do you have to a storyteller if they want to create their own um, series of hidden wisdoms? Let me digress. Sure to pull in some threads that I think could be helpful. The Nefandi represent the concept of inverted magical practice in a mage perspective, but they also link into uh, werewolf and vampire in key ways. In particular, the concept of the worm in werewolf, where the universe is supposed to be balanced between three forces, the creative wild, the organizing weaver, and the destructive entropic worm. The Nefandi, and then in the vampire sense, the demonic elements of vampire, that there are demons in the world, and though vampires aren't directly tied to them, these demons have power and are bad, even from a vampiric standpoint, are bad and things you shouldn't be linking yourself to. Those tie into the Nefandi in that the Nefandi have been at times sewn into both the worm and the demon-worshipping elements of both of those game lines. There's there's this entropic force that is viewed as the worm in mm-hmm. the in werewolf. Did the Nefandi call it the worm? At times, yes, they do. Is it a case where two people are looking at the same entity and they have a different name for it, or do they consider the other person wrong? Maybe. And that's where it's kind of those two layers get weird because at times the Nefandi have been like, we are worm worshippers and we worship demons and the worm and demons are all the same thing, which is one angle to take the Nefandi that like, okay, yes, these are demon worshippers. They do so because they want to destroy the world and their goals are to tap into these entropic forces and cause complete destruction to everything around them. Or they could simply say that everything in society is worthless from a Gnostic perspective. And if that is the case, then why don't we go out in a hedonistic blow of explosion and tear everything down, which gets into elements of urge and demiurge and things like that from a Gnostic perspective. No, that's fine. In fact, I would like to pitch you on an idea. 
that whenever I read about yes. Gnostic belief, so the so the the foundational idea of a Gnostic belief is that there is some sort of entity, being, or force that is preventing regular people from having access to what is considered to be a truer reality. In Christian Gnosticism, that entity was called called the Demiurge, and that prevented humanity from accessing <laughs> directly the love of God. And you have a whole spectrum of Gnosticism, and on one and there is the belief that it is still the year like 63 CE. We are all still in Rome. And I always wanted to see a Gnostic reality TV show, which was just someone saying it's actually 63 CE and we're all still stuck in Rome. And that would be the entirety of the show. No one would ever watch it, but I would get a hearty laugh at it. So <laughs> would you pick up that pilot? No. I think what you, you've pulled out there too about the Gnostic elements of, of connection is essentially what the Nefandi are saying, which almost makes them sympathetic, ugh, is that everything that we think we are doing as mages, that we think we have power over, is bullshit. And instead of taking on the things that we think we're in control of, let's actually go after the things that are holding us back and destroy them so that we can save all of reality. So I built up that faith. So you, you have answered the question of this is a case where a mage is going to look at someone else's occult practice and say, hey, I, I understand what's happening here. I guess my, my question is, if I want to sit down with pen and paper and build one for my players to stumble across, do you have any recommendations on how to do that? Yeah. The, the question you have to ask yourself is what is their goal? Regardless of, of if it's a positive goal, a negative goal, or whatever, every occult order has a goal they have a purpose they have something they are trying to do whether that is they are trying to reach god or they are trying to enlighten themselves or they are trying to take over walmart whatever it is they have a goal and once you've decided what an occult order's goals are you can then back down and say well what are their rituals that help them get to that goal and you can build your rituals for them from that understanding. You have to basically do what you do with a mage. You create a paradigm for them to work in, and their focuses are their rituals that they use to gain that goal. And their version of ascension, or what have you, is whatever that core thing is. Yes. And I like the idea of using this as an opportunity for you to write a supplement called the Cult of the uh, the Sacred Rollback, <laughs> whose goal is to take back Walmart <laughs> and to have it go back to the old logo. Yes. Um, I, I could really get behind that. Now, when constructing a cult, should there be a street-level element of it? Do you feel that most occult practices are going to have a, this is how the public gets involved? Or is it okay to have other recruitment mechanisms? It all depends uh, on on which angle you want to take it. So right now, my characters in my Victorian game have gotten glimmers of these different occult orders that are happening around London. And at the time, in 1888, they're in the spring of 1888, about six months before the Jack the Ripper murders. They know that these occult orders exist, and these occult orders have semi-private parties around the city. For people to attend. So for me, to answer your question, there has to be a little bit of an invitation for them to get involved. But if you're using a modern game, I would say it would be more interesting to have street preachers, maybe, more even uh, Hare Krishnas. I'm not saying you would use Hare Krishna practice, 
but you could use uh, them or Jehovah's Witnesses, the types of practices that they do. They go around and they kind of proselytize to folks. You can use those as a linking mechanism into the greater occult order that you're creating. So when you say you have dropped hints to your players, how did your players get that initial invite? What are some plot hooks that we can give to storytellers that say, hey, you've created this organization with hidden knowledge that has layers to it, and you want to in some way have a plot that involves the occult? What were, mm-hmm. what were literally the, 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 the clues that you gave your players or the hooks that you left out for them? In my case, I just said, you're showing up at this party you were invited to, which is a very crass way of going about it. But it but can it be works. effective. Right. Um, that said, the hooks that I would suggest people using, one of the most obvious um, and ties into the Arcanum, which is one of my favorite groups in the World of Darkness. They're a group of mortals that look into all of the various supernaturals in the world of darkness and record all of their information. And that's all they do. They just record and they like watch and listen. They're a bit like the watchers from Buffy or there's another group that I'm thinking of or the Talamasca from Anne Rice's books. But the reason I like them is because they're a good hook for this sort of thing. You could say to someone, Hey, you are a etherite or a virtual adept. You work as a professor in a university a member of the Arcanum comes to you and says, hey, would you like to join our order? It can be th- that obvious on that level. Like that's one hook that you could use very easily. So it sounds like you have, there are kind of three sets of hooks. One would be atmospheric in the sense that your characters will become aware of an occult presence of some sort because literally there is a street level activity. There mm-hmm. is a storefront that offers meals to the homeless, but in exchange they also offer spirituality courses or something like that, <laughs> an attempt to right. build membership. The other one is going to be the direct invite where your characters are literally invited to an event or uh, through through another social tie. And it seems like the third one is kind of a sideways one, like the, the one you mentioned with an etherite, where your characters are interfacing with someone who is an occult member and they may not know it yet. It could be the direct, hey, do you want to join our society? But they, they could be interacting with an occult element and they don't know it, and, and somehow that gets woven into a story. Yes, absolutely. So the thing I'm learning so far in this podcast is almost everything is occult. There are 10,000 ways to introduce it. The The world is overrun with these kind of organizations and that probably eight seconds on Wikipedia will give me 900 organizations I never even knew existed. Absolutely. Like okay. the, there's no hyperbole in what you said, even if you intended hyperbole. It's absolutely true because so much of what humans do is ritual practice, whether or not we admit it or not. And so much of that ritual practice is tied into groups that use the rituals we do for occult purposes. And now I sound like a conspiracy theorist person, but... Or an anthropologist. (laughs) Right. One or Um, the other. Yeah. That, I mean, it is a a small ritual when when I say hello to my colleagues in in the morning, and there is a particular way I do that for each person. Or that I know the days of the week where I ask a particular person about a baseball game. You, You bring up something interesting, because on some character sheets, we have dots in ritual. What is that going to be versus dots in a cult? So in most cases, ritual as a, as a statistic on a character sheet is about speci- is knowledge of specific rituals. So ritual is specifically about knowing 
um, specific rituals, which seems really uh, redundant. I can't like use a definition as a definition sort of situation. Well, but... it sounds like so ritual is about the practice. This is where I need to put the knife. Mm. This is where I need to set out the stones. Yes. Makes sense. So mm. one indicates your knowledge of uh, a ritual. One is your ability to implement and perform. And I think there's now high ritual, which is kind of the ability to to work with a bunch of people. And it's almost a social activity in that regard. Exactly. And that's one of the big differences between, I think, individual magic from a mage perspective and occultism is that there will be a mix of personal and group practices. Those things all kind of link in and play with each other. This has been an absolutely fascinating tour for me. Are there any, if a listener is fascinated by this, is there any additional general resources that you would recommend a person look into um, on the nature of occult practice or the, the nature of ritual or wisdom? before they uh, they try and dive in and create their own? I wish I had a really like specific book that comes to mind. Um, I've done so much reading from different perspectives, it's hard to say like this is one angle you could take. Um, there are anthropology books out there that talk about ritual, which I actually think would be a, a really good place to start. I wish I had like this is a specific book, but there's so many different ways to go into it. Yeah, Janice's big book of ritual does not quite exist yet. <laughs> Although I have no doubt that based on your introduction that you will have a Storyteller Vault entry on it that I will be paying $4 for within the next six months on that. I I would really love to, but I cannot promise that. Okay, I understand. You heard it here first. Josh has promised to make that guide. Um, do you have any other closing thoughts on the topic or any any projects that you're working on that you want to shout out, possibly other podcasts that you do? <laughs> um, so I am the runner for Werewolf the Podcast. So if folks are interested in Werewolf the Apocalypse, they can stop by and listen to me there. Um, I'm also a friend of Twin Cities by Night um, and part of their Cold Brew crew. They run actual plays of uh, various World of Darkness games, and I would really recommend them to anyone that uh, is interested in actual play games. I also really recommend, and I'm sure everyone that listens to this is already excited for it, but pick up Gods and Monsters when it comes out, because it's going to be an amazing book. And, because I'm all about self-promotion, if you're into fantasy, grim fantasy RPGs, in snowbound places, Snowhaven will be coming out um, in Kickstarter, maybe at the end of this month, maybe in March, and that's going to be a fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons supplement. But it's going to be a very cool supplement. It's going to be very small. It's going to be about sixty pages, but it's going to be something that I think folks would be interested in. Fascinating. Thank you so much for your time, and we hope you get a uh, chance at Mage the Podcast to talk to you again about Werewolf. And you can finally convince me it is not just a game for people who really enjoyed lacrosse and then joined a fraternity in college. Definitely. I am excited to come back and have that conversation because I would love to drag you into a Werewolf game at some point. Oh, that sounds fun and terrifying. Thank you so much for your time, Josh. Definitely. Happy to be here.